You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. This episode is another in our regular series, taking an in-depth look at the SMFM pregnancy meeting. To find out more about the meeting, go to www.smfm.org or go to the AJP homepage at www.tima.com forward slash AJP. Today's talk is not to uh, talk about necessarily specific tests or specific strategies for the prediction of preterm birth, because I think, first of all, largely this audience is aware of what is extant in clinical practice and literature with respect to that, but to talk about the topic of and the, the general notion of clinical prediction and what that means, how good are we at that in general in medicine and in specific with respect to prematurity, and why... I will posit to you that we should continue to rely on it uh, as the basis for making prognostication and offering prevention and treatment strategies. Uh, it's a little bit of a philosophical talk, but uh, not purely philosophical talk. That would be weird. The, the use of clinical observation to predict the risk of disease or the nature of health or the, the loss of health is one that is, you know, since the notion of health and disease has been recorded by human species, the... Uh, has been uh, an element of that, and this is an example of that by no means the earliest. Uh, uh, Hippocrates promotes the concept of disease as a result of an imbalance among four vital humors, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood, and that, that, that interrelationship, that they were interrelated, and their balance and interrelationship was what determined health, and a loss of balance determined loss of health. That general concept is... Uh, largely what we use today in our concept of disease and health in modern medicine. We think we're smarter than this because we think of characteristics different from bile and different from humors. Uh, but largely, this notion of observation relating exposures uh, to health outcomes, that general mindset in the approach to health and disease has uh, been a part of uh, our approach to health and disease as long as we've been doing it as a species. This is a uh, painting from the late 1800s from a British painter, uh, uh, Sir Luke Fildes, 1887. It's called The Doctor. In this painting, this is the doctor. This is the patient who's a child. This is the, that child's parents, father, and mother here. There's a number of observations one can make about this, and I won't spend too much time on it, but one important element. The doctor is observing the ill child, making recommendations, prognostications, preparing and offering treatments here. The uh, this was largely thought to be a reaction to a move in the late 1800s, early 1900s, towards a more scientific, enlightenment view towards health and disease and not relying on things like history, things like physical examination. And this is a reaction to that, uh, this painting, is often seen as emblematic of that tension between clinical observation and the reliance on science to, to drive um, clinical decision-making, and I, I think I would posit that we should not consider these separately but consider them together and think of science as contributing to our clinical observation and think of them as an element of our clinical risk stratification. I'll try and make that point several times. Fundamentally, the art of medicine boils down to playing the percentages and predicting outcomes. This is what we do every day in our clinics and offices and labors and deliveries. When clinicians take a history, they ask questions that they think provide them information to make a diagnosis. They order tests that give them data 
to support or refute those elements of the differential. Uh, and along the way, in iterative fashion, as one integrates those, the answers to the questions and the data that flow, uh, hypotheses become more or less likely, and then treatment decisions can be made. There are, in fact, rational strategies to objectify, reduce variance, and improve detection and diagnostic precision around these clinical estimates, and these are called different things in the literature, prediction rules, probability assessments, prediction models, decision rules, risk scores, et cetera. They all sort of do the same thing. Assess the combination of multiple predictors. These might be patient characteristics. They might be biological assay results to estimate the probability of an outcome or identify an intervention like treatment responsiveness, et cetera. There are easy or fancy ways to analyze data like this to develop these models. We'll talk about why it matters or how much it does matter, whether you use a fancy method or an easy method. Uh, but things like data mining and big data are certainly popular in common parlance today, and maybe they hold some promise for better extracting prognostic value from data sets. But ideally, regardless of how fancy or not fancy your statistical approach is to these variables, a reliable predictive factor model should identify a high proportion of patients who will get the outcome and exclude those who don't. Right? We want them to be sensitive, and we want them to be specific. And this is kind of an, an indelible truth in what we look for in formal prediction or informal prediction. When they're appropriately developed and validated, they have inherent advantages over human decision, clinical decision-making. They can accommodate many more factors in many more complex ways than the human brain is capable of considering. The human brain certainly brings, is value-added. It is, in fact, a source of many of the variables in prediction models, but in integrating them, Computers are better. Models are better. Uh, if given identical data, the statistical model uh, will produce the same result repeatedly uh, and should not have inconsistency and disparity that can happen based on things like fatigue or provider experience, et cetera. And most importantly, if you're just utilitarian, results-oriented, prediction models are better when compared to clinical judgment alone. There are countless examples of that from the, a broad range of clinical conditions in medicine. There are five ways to develop clinical prediction models. Scoring systems from univariate analysis, prediction models from multivariate analysis, nomograms, artificial neural networks, decision trees. Each of these has their advantages and disadvantages. I'm glad if there's interest in talking about the relative uh, merits or disadvantages of each, each of these strategies, but uh, I'm not going to go into great depth for each of these. But in, in a way, regardless of how you develop the prediction rule, there are four steps that one should take before implementing it. Uh, develop it, identify the predictors from an observational study, validate it, so test those pr that prediction in a population that is different from uh, that used to derive or develop the prediction. Measure the utility of that rule in a clinical setting using uh, metrics such as cost, benefit, satisfaction, time, resource allocation, et cetera, and then implementation. And rather. So there widespread acceptance and adoption of the rule in clinical practice, and then a measure of effectiveness in that implementation setting. These are the four steps needed to implement this clinical prediction rule. And again, I'd argue whether those data elements are, are demographic, based on clinical assessments, or based on really fancy assays, they're still variables that are used to predict a condition. And so this set of criteria, this set of steps, I think we're obligated to follow these before adopting prediction strategies. How can clinical prediction go wrong? You might estimate the pretest probability of a disease incorrectly. Uh, so studies can suffer from availability bias. Availability bias would 
cause the results of a study to overestimate the probability uh, of some events, vivid or easily recalled events. Uh, these are like rare but memorable diseases. Clinical prediction rules can be inaccurate due to methodologic problems in their derivation. One common example of this is spectrum bias, such that the population, the, refer the sample population, differs in clinical spectrum from the obstetrical population you intend your study to, to represent. You might study people with the most severe of conditions, and, th and thus your prediction is not driven towards identifying the range of spectrum of conditions that exist in your, in your population. You might have imprecise quantitative estimates in a prediction rule. Largely, this is driven uh, mostly by sample size. Not only aggregate sample size, but things like the number of subjects per predictor. Uh, you want to have enough sample, enough variance in that sample for each predictor to, for appropriate spending of the degrees of freedom in prediction. This example of a nomogram, uh, without, and this is, happens to be uh, calculating the probability of alcohol abuse using a test. The way nomograms work is that a pretest probability is over here. In this individual example, let's say you have a patient with a 5% likelihood of alcohol abuse. That prediction rule, uh, in, in this instance, identifies a likelihood ratio positive of something like 12, and thus the post-test probability is about 40%. So easy, uh, in this instance, this could even, not even be electronic, it could be a, a paper method to be able to take a pretest probability, use the prediction capability, and come up with a post-test probability. If you're interested in this topic, this is a uh, I think, uh, absolutely uh, terrific paper to read uh, from the mid-1980s on clinical prediction rules, their methods, and, and the rigor with which they should be derived and validated. In the mid-'80s, uh, uh, Wasson and colleagues assessed the published literature for how good literature on uh, prediction rules followed the rules, uh, and the answer is, depends on the rule, but generally not very well. 85% of studies define the outcome, but only 25% of them had appropriate blinding of that outcome as part of their methodology. 97% met the standard of defining the predictive finding, but only 27% had blinding of uh, assessment of clinical factors, uh, had blinding of the outcome when clinical factors were assessed. Only 6% prospectively measured the effects of the clinical use of a number. It's, so mid-1980s, we weren't very good at developing and rigorously testing prediction rules. Have we gotten better? Uh, this is from 2017, a uh, systematic review, ultimately of starting from a large pool of potential articles, as systematic reviews tend to do, ultimately boiling them down to 71 studies meeting criteria for examination for rigor of adherence to appropriate methodology. The study design was unclear in 15% of studies. The appropriate design for prediction rule, prospective cohort study, was only used in 60%. Continuous predictors, so biological variables that follow along a spectrum, when possible. When variables are continuous, they should be considered as continuous variables as predictors, allowing cut points to travel with prediction, not pre-specified cut points. And only a third of studies did that. Uh, Two-thirds of studies categorized or dichotomized continuous predictors. Sample size was inadequate in half and on down the list, methodologically poor in evaluation. So one point I'd like to make is, one, before abandoning the notion of clinical prediction, we should, first of all, consider broad what is included as variables that could be considered in prediction models. And two, we should follow rigor in assessing and validating, uh, developing, validating, and assessing those prediction rules before dismissing them out of hand. And Certainly in obstetrics, we have not been particularly good about uh, 
following the right methodology with respect to clinical prediction rule development and validation. Now, the specific problem of preterm birth, uh, there are elements of preterm birth that make it uh, perhaps difficult to predict, uh, but at, at the same time perhaps suitable for clinical prediction rules. It is complex with respect to its clinical presentation, its causes, and its consequences. It is a fundamentally heterogeneous condition. Uh, there is poor cohesion in matching risk and prevention. Uh, these are maybe philosophical points. I won't opine at this juncture about the answers to these questions are my view, but should biology influence intervention? Do we need to know how an intervention works before we test it? And should that intervention follow from the predictors? The answer, in my opinion, is not necessarily, but uh, perhaps so. And this notion of multiple pathways and single intervention, is that appropriate or do there need to be interventions per pathway? This has been a source of debate and philosophical disagreement within prematurity, and, and this will inform the applicability and the nature of our clinical prediction rules that we develop our decisions with respect to these answers. So tracing colleagues uh, did this study from the GPN-PBR, a really well done multi-center study sponsored by NACHD to study uh, the biological and clinical antecedents to singleton spontaneous preterm birth. In this uh, analysis from GPN-PBR, uh, with the outcome of spontaneous preterm birth less than 34 weeks, these investigators identified nine spontaneous preterm birth phenotypes based on clinically extant data. They're listed here. I won't read them all. These investigators uh, did not consider these to be mutually exclusive, and in fact, directly in, in reviewing uh, spontaneous preterm birth charts, attributed phenotype or phenotypes to these. On the chart on the left are the number of phenotypes associated with a case of preterm birth and the distribution of how commonly. So, for example, 4.2% of their preterm births didn't fit any of their phenotypes. 18% roughly fit one phenotype. But as you see, the, the number of clinical phenotypes were large and not mutually exclusive. So the majority of individuals had multiple phenotypes associated with spontaneous preterm birth with varying weights of evidence supporting the presence or absence of a phenotype as contributing. It's the nature of the beast. It's the nature of the complexity of the condition. We cannot disentangle or extract this from the fundam fundamental nature of the condition. And instead, we should own it, embrace it, and develop prediction and prevention strategies that accommodate this heterogeneity. I want to talk a little bit about how good we are at predicting preterm birth using clinical risk prediction. Uh, there are too many studies to, for me to delineate them all. There are, uh, I, I'd say 10 high-quality studies evaluating clinical prediction of preterm birth using multiple predictors in the published literature, and I'm not presenting all 10 because I'll run out of time. But this is emblematic of types of cohorts and methodologies that I think are instructed to talk about. In this study, two cohorts were used to develop and validate a prediction model. One, singleton pregnancies with intact membranes and no cerclage. And the second, twin pregnancies with intact membranes and no cerclage. So singletons and twins. This was done using data from a perinatal network in France. Patients transferred uh, in one or, one or the other of these cohorts because of threatened preterm delivery. So in this instance, these people were symptomatic. And the probability of delivery within 48 hours was the end point of interest, the, the goal of the prediction model. And they decided to validate a model as a nomogram, so similar to the alcohol picture I showed you before. This is the, the flow diagram of patients within their cohort uh, and the number numbers who were lost to follow up and available for um, assessment. I don't need to go into this in detail. The majority of patients had clinically available data and on both predictors and outcome. Characteristics that were considered are, when they considered, you know, sort of straightforward available clinical predictors, these are things like 
any of us would have in our EMRs, age, parity, history of uh, preterm delivery in the past, gestational age, clinical characteristics, length of cervix. These, these are commonly uh, easily available uh, variables. In considering these together to pre uh, predict, one common way that the, that the balance of sensitivity and specificity for predictors are framed is through a graph like this, which is a receiver operating characteristic or ROC curve. One minus specificity here, sensitivity there. As one increases or loses specificity, one gains sensitivity and vice versa. They're inversely related to each other. And one can look at the curve overall and gauge overall uh, model predictive capability with a, a trait called area under the curve. Basically, 1.0, which would be a curve that looked like this, would be there. Coin flip would be 0 0.5. So ranging from worst case 0 0.5, best case 1.0, 0 0.88. Uh, in the world of clinical prediction, uh, quite good. This is a, uh, in using test retest, so applying the model to serially and randomly selected sub-elements of the cohort, they found excellent fit of this model when applied uh, re repetitively to individuals from that cohort. This is another example, and th the, this is from using a large uh, data set from New South Wales, Australia, 18,000 pregnancy episodes over a uh, nine-year period of time. Uh, their intent was to derive an easy-to-use interpretable prediction rule and quantify uncertainties, which is an important element. So know what you know, but also decide what you don't know uh, and how much you can't explain with a prediction model. And then construct accurate classifiers for preterm birth prediction. Pick cut points in prediction that say, yeah, we think this lady's going to deliver. No, we think this lady's not going to deliver. Of the large number of variables in their data set, these are the variables that ultimately were retained in their risk prediction rules. Uh, the specific variables, I suppose, don't matter a ton, although you can certainly see what they are here. They are largely risk and exposure-related things. Importantly, they decided to weight and consider variables uh, based on the magnitude of their and direction of their relationship to preterm birth. So some have positive numbers. That means they increase the risk. Some have negative numbers. That means they decrease the risk. Some have numbers that are bigger. So that means they're really, uh, they, they drive the risk more, and some have numbers that are smaller, and that means they drive the risk less. They're used together to calculate a score, and based on the score, this is the anticipated probability. If one then sets an optimal cut point based on sensitivity and specificity, you, you reach sensitivity and specificity range uh, just based on these observations alone in the uh, sensitivity in the low 70s, specificity in the uh, low 60s, at positive negative predictive value of roughly 70%, which is, uh, again, I would argue, pretty good. Uh, I think we'll talk in the discussion later why, I, how good a prediction we need to have and whether 100% is, is too good. Maybe we don't need to be that good. Maybe there's disadvantages to predicting too well. But I'll save that uh, controversial statement for discussion later. Uh, this is work that folks from our group will be presenting um, at this meeting, and I'm not presenting anything that's not contained in the abstract, but if you're interested, you can go to poster 712. This is a secondary analysis of data collected in a prospective observational cohort study uh, done many years ago by the MFMU network of NICHD called the Preterm Prediction Study, which enrolled roughly 2,900 women and collected clinical and biological variables at three study visits over pregnancy with an attempt to identify clinical variables and biomarkers that were predictive of preterm birth. This is one of the most influential studies that drove, for example, cervical length as a predictor of preterm birth. 
purpose of this analysis is to identify clinically available var uh, variables, variables that we would have in our EMRs in, in sort of standard fashion, and just using those variables alone, how good would they perform in prediction of preterm birth? And compared that to uh, a series of other available metrics. So one, if we just consider preterm birth history alone, one variable alone, how good is that? Cervical length alone, how good is that? And then how about a set of clinical variables and history together? And we'll call that clinical only. And then clinical variables, preterm birth, and cervical length, sort of like the fully saturated model with these. And these are standard predictors. These are nothing fancy, nothing, no cool assay or uh, microbiome thing or whatever stuff you'll hear about later today. This is stuff that's in the chart, uh, cervical length, uh, and history of preterm birth. Uh, these are the area under the curve. These are the ROC curves, and then the area under the curves associated with each of these four. Again, a useless predictor would have the 0 0.5. That's this green diagonal thingy here. Uh, Preterm birth history alone, area under the curve, 0.6. Cervical length only, 0.6. So firstly, history alone and cervical length are comparably predictive. In real clinical practice, we use these sometimes together, but we actually use them independently, right? We use them independently in our... Uh, recommendations for things like progesterone, for example, or we use them in our recommendation for uh, interventions like cerclage, potentially, and they perform pretty similarly, actually. Uh, using clinical variables alone, so without any of the other elements, the area into the curve is 0.69, roughly, which is superior to preterm birth history alone and cervical length alone. And then when you combine sort of the maximally saturated model, you can up your AUC to 0.7. This is, if you will, the development of a prediction rule. It's not validation. It's not uh, an assessment of value added, and it's not implementation. And so no one should take any of these data on the three, slides, the three studies I've presented and use them because, to my mind, they haven't been validated and uh, their utility hasn't been uh, gauged. But uh, largely, I'd say we've adopted a couple of metrics, cervical length and preterm birth history, without doing those second two steps also in obstetrics. So... I think we're already guilty of that. Moving towards preterm birth prediction, I think things worth talking about, the phenotype of preterm birth, there's more than one, and they're not knowable prospectively. So during an ongoing pregnancy, a woman is pregnant. You won't, to date, the phenotyping work such as that done by GPMPBR is based on post-hoc assessment, not prospective assessment. Candidate predictors, biologic versus clinical, I'd make the offering that those are that's a false distinction. You should view them the same way, uh, hold them to the same standard, don't uh, hold biological predictors to some higher standard because somehow they're, they're fancier and cooler. Hold them to the same standard and don't underestimate the value of clinical prediction. Consider these variables together and they in fact can work together. And then use the appropriate methodology to drive prediction. Suitable design characteristics to the study to de uh, develop, validate, and study the impact of prediction rules before embarking on their adoption in this stepwise fashion. A similar I don't have any more slides on this particular topic, but I think this is an important element. The same approach can be used in terms of prediction of treatment response. It's been used, I think, quite effectively in asthma treatment response and also quite effectively in depression treatment response. Among those identified as being at risk, if the number needed to treat is not to your liking or you have an un unsuitable number needed to harm, one can then use pretreatment or uh, early treatment prediction of responsiveness to then tailor therapy. This very legitimate could be applied to progesterone use, cerclage use, and pessary use, and ought to be, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and that is all I have.
That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about the journal at www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next time. <laughs>